Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Zane Landon. He, is, he identifies as Hispanic, queer, and disabled. He is a mental health and disability advocate, a queer rights activist, an entrepreneur. I could go on and on. So I'm excited to have Zane here and I'll, you know, let Zane tell us more about himself. And thank you so much, Zane. Why don't you say hello and share a little bit more about you and your great story? Well, hello. Thank you so much for having me today to share my story. As you said, I am Zane Landon. I share a lot of I would say intersectional identities. I'll just start with, you know, what's on the top of my head. I think it's really interesting when you talk about intersectionality and how all those different identities play out and also how they kind of first developed because, you know, some identities came first and second and third. You know, when I was born, of course, I was born Hispanic. So I knew that from a very young age. Did I know I was queer from a young age? No. I kind of discovered being queer and belonging to the LGBTQ plus community when I was around middle school. And that was a, I'll even just start there because that was an interesting kind of hard time. Not necessarily hard finding my identity, but because I identify as bisexual, I didn't know what mold I fit into because I thought that there was a mold. I think a lot of people who experience those type of kind of fluid sexualities will have trouble accepting themselves and also understanding what it means because we're so kind of set in stone that sexuality is a binary and not fluid or you can be attracted to several genders or whatever it is. So for me, it did take some time because I didn't know what, quote unquote, what side to pick. (laughs) I didn't realize you could embrace both. So when I learned more about the community and researching it, I was able to kind of have more of an understanding but it takes some time to understand those identities because of the kind of preconceived notions about them. And so, and then, you know, growing up, I had, I had, you know, I had challenges with concentrating and finishing homework. So I always had a hard time in, in school. The schooling system was always very difficult for me. So I needed additional tools to be an, a student equal to my peers and that's why I was on like a 504 plan growing up, but I didn't realize I was a, a disability until I was in university where I was becoming more of a disability advocate. I think because sometimes the the social stigma around disability is so strong that I wasn't really informed I had a disability. Of course, the school system knew, but I just didn't really know. Um, so that was a recent revelation, actually, because I just you know graduated from university and I kind of found a safe haven in the disability organization that they had on that college campus where I learned about disability, but also to the point where like sharing your story with your disability is an empowering thing. And also you're not just only encouraged to share it, but like you're actually celebrated. Like it's a good thing to share. I think there was a time where sharing your story wasn't, and people didn't want to hear about these personal things about yourself, especially as it related to things that they didn't understand. And I think mental health and disability communities are very misunderstood. I think it can, and it has contributed to people just not interested in knowing and that they're kind of scared to learn about it. I think that that's one of the biggest things that people without disabilities, I'm not generalizing, but you know, the ones I've experienced that they, it's not that they're against disability. 
and mental health, they just don't know how to interact with people like that. And instead of researching and instead of asking someone how they can support and accommodate them, they just avoid them altogether. So it's created this kind of place where people with disabilities are isolated and seen as invisible and they're not like visible in the world. And there's other things that, of course, that have contributed to that. But at the top of my head, I'm thinking of that right now as my experience has been. And then... Yeah, I mean, those are my identities. I also, I didn't mention, it wasn't in my bio, but <laughs> I am also, you know, plus size. I actually just did a pretty fun photo photo shoot yesterday. It was my first time ever doing something like that. I discovered a photographer who is all about bringing awareness to body positivity. And that means, you know, people who look differently, people who are plus size, people with different types of skin that we don't normally see. So I know because a lot of people kind of conflate body positivity with the plus size kind of movement. And of course it includes it, but body positivity is like all things bodies, including disabled bodies and what that looks like. So I love, I love that, you know, he's focusing on that and that he's going beyond what people have seen as body positivity. So it was, it was, it was a really interesting, fun photo shoot. And I was able to see the photos and it was exciting to see, myself and what I look like and for one to have a collection of photos I can use for whatever I want. Um, but just the possibility of going into a new career or trying something different. And it was the one of the first times where I felt comfortable being in front of the camera. I mean, I love being in front of the camera and I love talking and I have no problem being on video, but when I look at it, I do feel ashamed. And sometimes I will cover myself up or making sure like, or I always, love wearing a jacket because it kind of made myself look a little slimmer not then but <laughs> just a little slimmer so and he even had a great conversation with me about questioning why i didn't have a lot of photos because i don't have a lot of photos now i have like over 100 because of the ones he sent but i think because people who have different bodies are afraid of what they're what they look like and they're very self-conscious about it so the, it was a great experience and him and i had interesting really exciting conversations about body positivity and masculinity and a lot of different things that we kind of share passions about. So it was, it was great. It was like building a connection. It wasn't just like going out and shooting photos. It was about creating that rapport that we had. And like, we were talking for several hours. It was such a great experience. And I think that that's really important. And I love that the project that he's doing. So uh, that is another identity of mine that I'm passionate about and just kind of creating a world where all sizes and bodies can be, embraced and that beauty is not subjected to a specific standard that people have created in their minds and it lingers on of course because like because it makes sense like you have societal standards that have been passed on generation to generation and so it's hard to rework your entire mind around that being being big can be beautiful being a certain different type of body can be um and that's for you to decide i mean i think you have to come to terms with that yourself because you can be told that but at the end of the day, you it's you need to realize it. And I say it's hard to do that alone, but put yourself around people that will appreciate you and your body. Um, so I'm, I've been doing that more and following more accounts where people are ambitious and have the courage to show their body, especially when it's bodies we don't typically see in the media or the outside world where it's embraced. So I do love seeing stuff like that. And I think it's great that the world is shifting in a positive way.
Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting there how you talked about, you know, societal expectations through all these mm -hmm. things, but then also you have all of these intersectionalities with your identities. Um, so I'm curious if you'd be willing to talk a little bit um, about being Hispanic and mm -hmm. what that has been like growing up uh, where you live and kind of what that part of your identity means to you. I will say I have an interesting perspective on being Hispanic because I, I don't share a lot of things that I would say like people who are Hispanic have that I know. What I mean is like, I don't speak Spanish. I don't know a lot of like Mexican foods. Cause okay, to go more deeply into it, I am half Mexican. So just to go on my ethnicity. So, but I knew that being Hispanic and my ethnicity meant my family. And that is a core connection that I have to my ethnicity, but I don't know a lot about Mexican culture. Um, I want to go to Mexico one day and experience it for myself. So it, it's hard to speak on being Hispanic, but I will say, is that the identity is still mine. I still identify as Hispanic, so I can speak on, is I think that people who are multi-anything, that I will speak on multiracial. I think when someone is multiracial or again has several identities, it's, I feel like the erasure is so common. So what I mean is just because I don't exactly know about every cultural significance of being Hispanic or Mexican, and even just being lighter skinned, it, I don't think that takes away from being Hispanic. It just gives it a new dimension of being Hispanic. I think some people will look at that and say, well, traditionally, you're not really Hispanic. You're not really Mexican. I don't think that's very fair for circumstances that are outside of my control of how I was born and raised and how I look. So that's what I, that's what I mean when I say like racial erasure is really common for people with multiple racial identities and that it feels like they have to pick a specific identity and that's what they are or depending on how they look is what they are because a lot of people wouldn't think i'm hispanic and some people do <laughs> it's always so interesting but you know when you share your racial identities you're opening up that space and it's sad when people will say you're not really this or you're not you're not actually that when it's for one it's not your place to tell someone what they are what they aren't um and two i don't i don't think it's fair and i think it just makes the person question their identities more and make them feel confused. And that's why people who are racially ambiguous, they kind of have a hard time can be fitting in to racial groups or racial identities because they may not necessarily be accepted in any group. So there have been times where I don't feel exactly accepted with other Hispanic people, depending on not all, but like depending on the group I was a part of or like in university. And then there are times where I'm not going to be embraced by the white community because I'm not necessarily fully white. <laughs> so, and other identities, because I also have the identities of being uh, German, uh, Black, and Asian. So again, a lot of identities that I'm not necessarily going to fit into. Um, and I think that prevents you from getting to know your heritage when you are not given that access or that opportunity to explore it. And you have to kind of explore it in isolation, which makes it harder. Because I think what's important about these racial communities is the connection, the community. And it's sad when you're not given that because you don't fit into, again, the societal expectation of what it means to be Hispanic, right? So it all goes back to the like the societal and cultural um, barriers and what people expect you to be. And to me, I actually think that fitting into that stereotype that they have um, or that mold, to me, is, is, is driven by some form of racial bias. Because, again, they're looking at, this is what a typical Hispanic person does. Uh, even from within their own community, like, you know, I think... Uh, intercultural racism is a huge issue um, because they are also perpetuating this idea of what you need to be and how you need to act. And I think that that 
I'm not going to say it's racist because I don't think it is. But again, I think it's racial bias because you're looking at a group of people and you think this is how they, this is how they operate. This is how they behave. So everyone has to be that way. And if you don't, if you deviate from it, you're not accepted into that group. I just don't get how that works. <laughs> so for me, I'd never understood that. Um, again, whatever your identity is, I think you should be embraced if that's your racial identity. And we're all such intersectional beings and or multidimensional beings. It's not very fair to put people in boxes, especially when it comes from our own community, because that's where you want your love from the most, right? When you hear it from your own community, that's where it kind of stings and impacts you more, because I guess you can expect that coming from other communities that maybe are not understanding of what it is to be Hispanic. But when other Hispanic folks will say something like that, that's where it hurts the most, because that's where you want to build the connections with, you know, to feel more in tune with your racial identity. And again, for someone that doesn't have a lot of experience, knowing is a lot of Mexican culture that I can speak on, I want more Hispanic love then. I want more where I can learn from more, you know? So that's where it even hurts more. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it does. Yeah. And I think it's important to also hear, you know, how, how do you even explain? Like, I am Hispanic. However, like, there are all these things that I don't necessarily know about Hispanic culture, but I want to embrace those things. I want to learn more and, and be able to, you know, identify that way, I think is, yeah. is important to know, you know, who you are. Mm. So you talked a little bit about, you know, kind of learning what sexual identities exist you know, a little bit uh, in middle school. Um, so can you share how, you know, kind of you've navigated being bisexual since then? And if there was mm. any sort of like reaction, like, middle school high school is not the place most people want to go back to so were you <laughs> comfortable at that age yeah and you hear you know from people that when you can't articulate when there isn't language for something you can articulate it's very difficult so i feel for people when bisexuality was never a term because i was able to find solace in finding out that bisexuality existed when i did i was like wow i can actually comprehend what i was trying to think you know what i mean so you know i will say thank you for the people who have paved the way for those terms to exist because that was really important for me um and i will say you know i i definitely it definitely felt you know some of the biphobia <laughs> especially you know there as i talk about interracial racism you get that from lgbtq as well i think because they especially if they've grown up during times where bisexuality was embraced it can be hard to embrace it. Um, so for me, I definitely experienced biphobia within LGBTQ communities. Because again, they're looking at sexuality from a very binary lens. <laughs> um, and so I understand, but also I, I don't experience that. And so everywhere I go, I'm always trying to make sure people are comfortable with being bisexual or pansexual. But I have heard things like bisexuality doesn't exist. You kind of have to choose who you're attracted to or, or what gender you're attracted to. Um that's mostly it or mostly it just doesn't exist. So again, the erasure, I feel like erasure is really, is really a uh, common in my life where bisexuality doesn't exist or like certain racial identities don't exist. Um, even disability, since I have non-apparent disabilities, so you can't see them. So there would people that would not think I'm disabled and say I'm not, um, not many, but there, there are definitely people out there that would think that there was an example I saw where someone had a handicap placard and they parked in the accessible parking. And so they're able to get out, but they walked out. And then someone like posted like a hate message saying like, 
my son is in a wheelchair and it's disgusting that you would use a placard that way. I'm never going to assume that someone's actually going to use a placard for something false like that. But again, disability, people have disabilities and can walk. (laughs) And also even people who like are wheelchair users, they may be able to get up and walk for maybe like a couple minutes or even 20 minutes. But like maybe they're maybe they're not they can't walk after that. So it's not fair to assume that they don't have a disability because they walk for a couple seconds so they get up. You know, again, that's another standard that they have about what it means to be disabled. And especially as it relates to physical disabilities, people can't. I feel like a lot of this stuff that impacts me is stuff you can't see. And that is an issue for people who have non-apparent disabilities that they kind of have to understand what their disability means because they may not be treated as that. And they also have the fortune to not mention they have a disability. Um, but anyways, so that that is kind of the stuff that I experienced, the backlash or the criticism I got about bisexual or pansexual. So now you mentioned that you didn't really know you were disabled until you were in college, but mm-hmm. your disability was kind of more focused on like schoolwork and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So how does your disability affect your day to day life now that you've graduated college? I just need to make sure that I am vocal about any accommodations I need and that sometimes I need may need to ask for an extension. Um, but I make sure now that I schedule everything because sometimes I will become high, well, either hyper-focused on something that I'm working on. And uh, as people know, if you, if you become hyper-focused, sometimes you accidentally work on something for hours. Um, when you should have allotted maybe just one or two hours to that task, so you can work on your other things. So I make sure I rely on calendars, making sure that every single thing that I need to do, I write it down. So it's always there instead of me having to remember which i think a lot of people need (laughs) um but i just i needed a lot more and that is like just the one thing that i've used to stay organized and also set many deadlines instead of trying to tackle a big task at once and i've realized that going through university and getting accommodations um so that is what i would say about that yeah now you also of course talked a little bit about body positivity and how Mm -hmm you know, you had this great experience with this photo shoot. What are you kind of like hoping for the future in terms of like more body positivity? As I mentioned at the beginning, I'm hoping that the body positivity movement can embrace more than just plus size people. (laughs) You know, I think everybody has gripes with their body. I don't know really anyone that doesn't have a complex about their body, right? I think everyone... And it's different, you know, people who are into the body positivity movement, for them, their issues with their body have may have been very debilitating to the point where they don't want to go out. That's different than having just a little complex about your body. So there is differences, but I do think that we all can relate and connect in a way where everyone has some sort of issue with their body at some point. I don't know anyone that really doesn't. Um, so I love that, you know, body positivity is more than that, because sometimes people are really skinny. And that's their that's their issue with their bodies. They're really skinny. They don't want. They want muscle. They want to look a certain way. So I love that. I see I see photos of people who are really skinny in these in these projects about body positivity, or people who have certain skin conditions. You know that we don't normally see in the media. So stuff like that. I want to see body positivity expand to more communities. And honestly, also the body positivity movement is still a little homogenous in a way when it comes to race. A lot of the times, I see a lot of more white folks embracing their body, which I think is great. But, you know, we, we need to encourage people of color to get involved in this and to share their body because, you know, it's I I think it's important. And I think it's great to have that 
that diversity and that honestly include them so they feel welcomed in these spaces. Um, so that's what I would say. And for me, I think it was always hard accepting my body. And I don't think I fully have just yet. I <laughs> hope I have. And things like yesterday were exactly um, what I think helped. So I would say that's what I'm hoping for body positivity. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can you share a little bit about like what you do um, in terms of being an advocate and in terms of being an activist for um, your various identities and the communities you belong to? I mean, first of all, I start off with, I think being vulnerable is really key to driving change. So I make sure that I am always vulnerable with the people around me so that they know that there is a space that they can come to me if they ever need to express anything, if that makes sense. So for me, wherever I go, I'm always trying to be vulnerable if it's on if it's on social media or if it's in my life so people know that they can come to me if they ever need that. I think that's the first step of not necessarily being an advocate, but being like an ally, making sure that the that safe space is always there and you're kind of facilitating it. And I think the next thing is I'm just always advocating just by learning as much as I can. I don't necessarily advocate for like racial identities. Um, but everywhere I go, if there's something about race, I'm always trying to engage in the conversation where I work and where I go. I'm always bringing that up though. So I may not necessarily be an advocate for all of my identities, but I make sure that I'm vocal about my experiences and that change does need to happen. But I'm no expert on some of my, um, some of the communities I belong to. Um, even like for mental health and disability, my main ones, what, what I usually do with advocacy is I'm always trying to share awareness about it. Um, I'm involved in several organizations about mental health and disability, especially when it comes to places where I work. I even told myself, because I had a mentor, her and I created a vision board of what I needed to see in employment. And this was before I graduated. It was a year before I graduated. And some of the stuff I realized was I need a place that embraces DEIA. I need a place that embraces growth culture you know, an actual place that invests time and resources into their employees rather than them just serve as a bean for the, the place of employment. Like they actually give you resources to grow as a leader. Uh, I'm, I'm, I would like to see a failure model. What I mean by that is, is failure, not necessarily it's embraced, <laughs> but failure is okay and it, and it will happen. And you're not going to be burned at the stake for it. <laughs> or you're not going to be just horribly scrutinized for one mistake that you made, that mis mistakes are inevitable. Um, and so I also realized that because my disability mental health identities, I will say are probably the most important out of all my identities, that I need a place where I can be in a group or a, a community that has that. Usually they call them like employee resource groups. So it's like, I need to work at a place that has a disability mental health employee resource group. So you can have that community that you belong to at a place of work where you can be open about your mental health and your disability. So um, I realized that. And so wherever I go, I'm always making sure that I am open about mental health and disability. So again, a lot of involvement in communities, writing for different publications, and just always being open wherever I go about it. And would you be willing to share a little bit more about your personal mental health journey? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, since I was very young, I experienced mental health symptoms and, you know, I can learn that I had, had mental health conditions and, and, you know, for her, from when I was young, I was, I had, you know, problems with anger, with depression, with anxiety, and it definitely manifested in every single thing. 
um, having to kind of understand these identities, of course, takes a toll on your mental health, especially when you hear things that are in opposition to you and you feel like there's not a place for you and you feel alone. I feel like that's like a very common thing that I hear when it comes to like mental health acceptance and with almost everything, like a lot of other identities, but with mental health, like the, the theme of you are not alone, I think is the most, I think it's profound though. I think it's great because there are a lot of people who experience mental health that really do think they're alone because mental health is so stigmatized that no one, no one wants to talk about it because no one wants to talk about it. It does look like it doesn't exist or it's invisible or it's very rare when it's actually very incredibly normal. <laughs> so for me, it was kind of hard to kind of talk about that growing up, but a little hard, not as hard as other people, because I did have a family that did know about mental health, knew about psychology, not psychology, but like psychologists, like my family does not, we're, we don't have like psychologists in the family, but you know, we knew about mental health because a lot of my family members experienced it. So we were just, we were aware. And so I feel like I was fortunate that my parents knew exactly what, what I needed. And that was to see psychologists and they were never, never, ever against like taking medication for mental health. Cause that's a huge thing that people have a problem with. Um, so, you know, I started seeing a psychologist probably by the time I was beginning of middle school when I was ending grammar school where I probably needed the most in that. Honestly, that's a good time, you know, especially when you're a teenager and that's where a lot of insecurities are happening because middle school is a very interesting transitional period. So it helped me a lot and it really helped me figure out, you know, and maintain my emotions. And I did relatively well. And then I, I didn't see them after high school and then university came around. And then during my third year, I was just going through a lot. I don't have to go into details on what I was going through, like what was going on in my life, but just know that there was a lot. And, you know, I was, I was beginning to engage in self-harm, which was really not good, but it was also interesting because I never thought about it before. I feel like the moment I engaged in it, it became a reality. And what I mean is like, again, it wasn't a reality for me. Self-harm was never a reality because I never thought I would ever cross that threshold. But when I did, it opened up a whole new place of darkness, if that makes sense. And so I was engaging in that. And then of course with that, I was having suicidal thoughts. So very terrible semester. And so I ended up withdrawing for that semester and kind of seeing how I can somewhat reinvent myself where, you know, I wouldn't experience this. So I, I definitely, after that time, I was able to figure out my life and, you know, stop engaging in the self-harm and kind of see myself in a different way and being more communicative, finding more support, asking for help when I need it was a big one. Cause again, I, I guess I think that's also a stigma with mental health again, and with everything, <laughs> that people have a hard time asking for help, um, which I think is sad. I think because we're driven so much by this individualized experience, and that's what we pay attention to more, that we need to accomplish things on our own. It's very contradictory to the, it takes a village. And I know a lot of people that believe in that, and I think it does take a village. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it, it sounds great. <laughs> When someone says, I've been able to accomplish everything on my own. But again, is that true? Like, I don't think I believe that. You know, like, maybe there are people that have independently accomplished a lot. But I think that there are still people on your journey that have helped you. Even if they didn't, like, completely invest in you. Maybe they gave you some words of encouragement. Maybe they gave you a hug or something. Or maybe they were a teacher that helped you move on to the next grade. It may not have been, like, completely 
fully impactful where like that one person changed my life completely. I hear stories like that and those are great. But again, I don't think that that's not everyone's story, but I do think that there are people on, on our journey that have helped that have helped shape who we are, maybe on the way we think. So that's why I do think that it's, it's never on your own. It's the people behind you. It's the people in your shadows that have led you to be where you are today. Um, so, so I don't think it's, I don't think it's problematic or, anything wrong with asking for help because we can do with other things, um, you know, but for some reason with mental health and other identities, it is difficult. And I get why, you know, it's a very personal thing. Um, and again, and the stigma. So that is after that, when I went through that and that was when I kind of realized that mental health was, it was uh, alarming and I knew it was, but I hadn't experienced it. And you know, there's this saying, and it's unfortunate, but it's completely true. We don't necessarily become, super invested or we like we delve into the work until it happens to us you know like for some people they may not advocate for mental health until one day they experience it themselves which i think is great that they're on that advocacy journey so for me even though i experienced a little never to that degree and then after that i realized i don't want people to experience that ever and i know they do but i want to create a world where we can talk about mental health and suicide more openly so it you know we're ending the stigma and so it normalizes it and then in doing so people are going to feel comfortable asking for help going to a psychologist taking medication all of it so they don't have to feel ashamed of doing it or they have to hide that aspect of them so that was when i became more of a serious advocate um so yeah it all kind of led from the whole journey from being a kid to a young adult and now um i'm becoming an advocate it's again most important part of me is my mental health disability journey and also being an advocate because it's it's so much of the work I do. Yes. Now you've had some pretty unique um, and special experiences while being an advocate. So do you want to share mm -hmm. some of those stories and experiences that you've gotten to take part of? Well, one of my proudest, I would say, achievements or initiatives that I decided to start was Positive Eyes Magazine, which is all about sharing the positive stories of mental health. I started it in May of 2020 from a class I was taking. We had to create our own publication. I thought I wanted to see mainstream media take a lead on addressing mental health. I mean, if you've seen television shows, news channels, music videos, is, are there, is there a lot of embracing and building awareness for mental health? I would say not, not necessarily. So I wanted to see more positivity towards mental health. So I decided to start the publication and we were going to just share blog posts about things. And then I decided to actually, no, someone reached out and then we kind of shifted to the point where we were featuring stories. And so, yeah, we were having stories and conversations and interviews with people who have experienced such hardships. They've been able to transform it into inspiration or turning wounds into wisdom, um, using your pain, turning it into purpose, stuff like things like that are, are what we're trying to create. Um, and we have, I'm always excited when we get to share a story on someone who maybe was assaulted or they've gone through something or they've lost people in their life, but they would to kind of transform that energy in a good way. Um, and I love creating that safe space. So even like interviews we get to do, even with people who are entertainers, we make sure we ask them about mental health and sometimes they won't be asked that. Um, so, you know, it's always interesting to hear their thoughts and even if they come from very different backgrounds, because if you see the kind of stories we we tell there are people from very different backgrounds, very different careers. We'll interview people who are spiritual healers and we'll interview people who have 
strict corporate jobs um and they and they're not spiritual um but the key is is that mental health is what connects everyone and connects all the people we have featured to the point where you learn that wow two people can be incredibly different they share no commonality um of course they will find some things of course <laughs> but i think mental health was something that they could all share on and i think it's all about realizing that mental health is not it's not rare it's not specific it's not something that impacts only a couple of people. In fact, everybody has mental health. Not everyone has mental health conditions, because again, that's, there's definitely a difference there. But everyone does have mental health that they need to take care of, just as they have physical health they have to take care of. Physical, physical health and mental health are the same. I don't believe one is better than the other. And usually they relate to each other. So sometimes if someone has poor physical health, um, it impacts their mind. If someone's mental health isn't doing well, they may have poor physical health. That's not always the case. Someone could be doing really well and be exercising all the time, but not have good mental health. But I do think they somewhat impact each other. So I think they do go a little hand in hand for some folks. So that's what I would say um, is such a great experience because every single interview I get to do, I learn something different about all these different communities. And we try and feature underrepresented voices um, that come from several different backgrounds. We're always trying to find people to share their stories. Um, and lately we've been getting more people with disabilities coming forward. And I love how, like, when you start featuring one person, like, it opens the door for others. So, like, there was a time where we were focusing on disability and featuring, like, a couple people, like, one or two that had disabilities that they wanted to speak on. And then, like, we just had more people, more people reaching out, which I think is really exciting, especially for disability mental health, because there's not many. I, I'm seeing more, but there's still very few media opportunities and, like, mainstream media or television shows about mental health and disability. So I think it's great. And then the second thing, I'm mean, like the final thing where in the magazine definitely kind of pushed me to go this route uh, or pushed me to be able to do something like this was getting to the Mental Health Youth Action Forum, which was the, if anyone's heard of it, it was Selena Gomez was the keynote speaker for it. And it was all about addressing youth mental health from the governmental side. And so it was hosted by MTV and the White, it was at the White House and they had several nonprofits was an exciting experience. You know, when I first saw it and I, I just decided to apply for it. I had no idea what was going to happen. I really convinced myself that it wasn't going to work anyways. It wasn't going to work out. But, you know, I stayed true to my vision and what I was passionate about. And I just kind of ran with that and, and spoke on that. And so for me, when, every, when anyone ever asked, like, how do you find your purpose? I think it is hard because it took me a long time. But I think it's important to go back to what what is it you really are passionate about? And that's where you start because you can go anywhere. I mean, because I'm passionate about mental health. You could literally do almost anything with that. If it's mental health writing, being a psychologist, or just working as a grant writer for a nonprofit about mental health, you could do anything. So always find, remember what you're passionate about. And sometimes even kind of connecting with your inner child and remembering what your inner child really loved doing. Anyways, so the forum was just an amazing experience where I connected with so many people in nonprofits and I had the opportunity to meet President Biden and, you know, have this open conversation about addressing youth mental. I mean, it was mainly about youth mental health, but I feel like a lot of things you address with youth mental health, it can translate to anyone. But youth mental have youth mental health have you know unique, um, unique characteristics that others don't. You know, especially when it comes to suicide. Again, this is a common thing. I think a common stat, but said the leading death for young adults. It the second leading death is suicide. So it is a very prevalent issue with youth. But again, I think with youth, you can translate to anyone. 
But anyways, so it was just a great experience. And again, I don't think I would have ever been afforded something like that unless I had like started the magazine, been vulnerable, and had like all those lived experiences. So yeah, those are the two things I would say are some of the most exciting things that have come from being an advocate. And I feel very fortunate because not every advocate gets to do something like that. Um, and my advice is, you know, find those unique top opportunities, connect with people that can get you to those places. Because again, I did not get there alone. Um, all these different circumstances helped. And again, I never thought I would do anything like that. So you never know what happens when you put yourself out there or try something new or meet someone. So always be open to every possibility. Definitely. Now, what are your hopes for the future with the magazine? My hopes for the future with it, just keep growing, grow as much as possible to include more voices, share diverse voices, share on new topics. That's it. I know like a lot of people I know that are focused on the, the stats and the numbers and the number of impact. Well, that's all great. I think sometimes it can be a distraction from what you you were initially trying to accomplish. When I started the magazine, I wasn't trying. I need to create a multi-million dollar thousand following brand. That's not that's not what I was thinking. That's not, not even what I want. What I want is to have those impactful stories that people can read and have those difficult conversations with people so we normalize all of it. Um, if, like, again, sharing stories on people who have belonged to gangs who were previous um, drug addicts or even who have been you know, sexually assaulted. Things that we don't hear about a lot, you know, depending on the spaces you're in, you might hear about it a lot, but from like a widespread public view, we don't hear about this a lot. A lot of it is kind of censored or stigmatized. So I love having these conversations where people can feel comfortable talking about these things. I had an interview where he is a, he was a photographer. We just released a story. And in the interview, he was talking about his journey. Then he even said in an interview, he's never shared, but there was a time where he was having suicidal thoughts every single day for, I don't know if it was months or years or weeks. I don't remember, but he was at, he was at that point. And it was great to hear that, that they felt comfortable enough to share that. Um, and that, you know, we're normalizing it more to a point where people can actually share it. I'm not saying we, as in just a magazine, I'm saying we as a collective of all the folks who are advocating for mental health, because there's so many folks. And I think it's great that the work that everyone's doing, everyone has a, an angle of how they're advocating. I think it's great. So that's the future I want the magazine to go in. Right. I, I saw something recently about how um, in the past number of years, we've become as a society more like casual about like death, suicide, joking in various ways. Um, and I think as as more people are able to be honest about what they're dealing with in the mental health space, that hopefully we can realize that like that casualness of things that aren't reality um, can pave the way for actual conversations about what people are actually feeling and, and going through. I have seen that. The one thing that comes the top of my mind is when and it depends on the other company's culture and also the person's person's comfort level but i just hear people now when i talk to you they just they're like oh my my therapist or my psychologist told me to told me about this and i was like that's so cool like you just you have no problem mentioning you have a, you go to a psychologist at all and there's no shame stick to that i like that because there, there was a time where it, there was where like you didn't want to tell anyone you were seeing a psychologist that was a taboo thing and the moment you said that, people look at you differently. So I love that people are casually just bringing up mental health. 
And again, mm-hmm. it, it creates more conversations because casually bringing up mental health, you may not necessarily go into your details about maybe if you were suicidal or something, but I love that it can, it can catalyze those conversations where that casualness, even like poking fun or having humor about it can just kind of make it seem like it's okay. This is normal. And Oh, it's actually not the worst experience. Cause I think sometimes with mental health, we think of it as a death sentence or like someone who has mental health, not saying we, but some people they, they can't achieve. They're going to have the most horrible life. Depends on the person. Um, Cause there, there are people that have had horrible experiences and there are people that were able to be very successful and change that. It depends on the person, but I don't want to just it to be the same narrative that we've seen for a long time, that mental health is the most negative thing. And again, I think if you see it that way, again, you're going to further stigmatize it because no one wants to talk about it that way then. You know, I, I was part of an organization and their, their mission was 70-30, which was when you tell your story, 70% needs to be positive and 30% needs to be negative. Or not negative, but like, you know, the horrible stuff that has come from it. I think that's actually, and that makes sense though, because someone in the audience who may have a mental health condition, they hear someone else, all they are talking about is the negative aspects they're not going to feel good and they may not even feel inspirational to say anything, but if you can share the, like the journey, the whole, like even like the, the bad parts of your journey, but show how it's benefited you. Maybe it's made you more empathetic. Maybe it helped you get this career or all the stuff that you've been able to build. That's inspirational. And that's where I think you have a lot of change where someone in the audience says, wow, so it is okay to not be okay. And I want to share that and I can be successful. So yeah, I hope that makes sense. It does. Yeah. And I think the narrative is definitely changing in the world of health, of mental health. So I think that's definitely a good thing. Yeah. Before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners? I think I'll just say, try to, try to find a place where you can be vulnerable. I think it's an important thing to do. I don't, I don't think everyone needs to be vulnerable because I'm, I know everyone's at a different place. But I think where you can be vulnerable, like you just feel more comfortable with yourself and you feel more like in tune with yourself and you can build that confidence. So again, maybe you're not at a place now. And I think that there's one thing I don't like about things nowadays is I, I, I think it's great that our culture pushes for people to be accepted. But my problem is I feel like it's pushed too hard on people where they're a little shamed for not doing it. So like sometimes I, I know people that will say, just accept yourself and you need to accept yourself. While I think that's great, I think we have to also recognize that people aren't at that place and we shouldn't shame them if they're not ready to accept themselves. So they're not ready to come out or they're not ready to talk about their mental health story. So I will say, hopefully you can find someone you can be vulnerable with. So maybe one day you can share this, but right now I just say, just keep trying your best. Cause I know it's, it's definitely hard and it's isolating, but and sometimes you can find those kind of people that you want to talk to online. Sometimes you have to take the approach and find that community. So either find your community or hopefully one day you can find one elsewhere if you're not getting the the kind of the positivity that you need right now. So it's not necessarily the, it's a little of a downer, but I think it is important to address that not everyone's at the place to do that. Because I always encourage people to share their story, but I also want to recognize some people just aren't there yet. And I think that's okay. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think it's a a great place uh, to wrap things up. Now, at the end of my episodes, I do ask everyone a random question. And, you know, we can maybe bring it around to a a happier note, but it's not going to have anything to do with what we've talked about. So my question for you is, if you could visit a planet, obviously not Earth, where we live, uh, what planet would you like to go to? 
I would like to go Neptune. <laughs> I think I would say Neptune because I really just always thought Neptune was like such a beautiful planet. I know it was like this like very smooth looking blue planet, but I always like, what is it? And as a kid, my favorite color was blue. <laughs> so, of course, I was going to gravitate towards the planet, that planet. But I just wanted to see what it's like on there. You know, a world of, like, blue and, is it oceans and snow? Because, obviously, it's going to be very cold. But I would love to see a world where it was like that. And what do I imagine Neptune to be? I imagine it to be kind of like a paradise where maybe everything is blue, light blue. Um, and it has, like, this calming feeling. Because for me... I don't really like the sun. So not like I hate the sun, but like I love days where it's gray, you know, like where it's overcast. So I imagine like it being like somewhat chilly, but nice overcast by an ocean. It's just peaceful. That's what I would like the planet to be like. And I would love to go there. Maybe meet some aliens if there are. <laughs> All right, that brings this episode to a close. If you would like to connect with Zane, I'll be leaving his LinkedIn and Instagram websites on in the description. So feel free to go follow and connect with him there. And if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description that brings you to all of our social media, including Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And if you would like to donate to the podcast monetarily, a link to do that is in the description as well. And of course, if you would like to be a guest and share your story, my email is directly in the description. So thank you so much, Zane, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.